Well, this morning we are looking at the very well-known story, David and Goliath. Perhaps one of the most beloved stories in all the Bible about God's ability to provide victory in the midst of overwhelming odds. Many are prone to identify themselves immediately with David. So they take this passage as a promise for victory against whatever problems seem overwhelming in their lives. Because they bridge the gap from the Philistine giant to the giant struggles that they're dealing with. And it doesn't take any time at all to come up with a laundry list of giants. I mean, work issues, family issues, health issues, or your own fight against sin. Every one of us can relate to those things and could easily call those things the giants that we're facing. All we need to do is be like David. Grab the sling and the stones that God has given to us, our abilities, our resources, our work ethic in order to conquer those giants. Yet if we did that, we'd be totally missing the point of this glorious story. But why? Why would that be so wrong? Well, because those aren't the giants that the Bible is most concerned about. It's not primarily worried about your career, your relationships, or your health issues, or the giants of your boss, your marriage, or your cancer. Those aren't the giants that we need to have in our crosshairs. Instead, the enemies we need to be most concerned about are sin and death and the devil. Because those are the enemies of our souls. Those are the giants that threaten our eternal well-being. Here's the catch. No matter what abilities, resources, or work ethic you have at your disposal, you're totally inadequate to deal with those giants. We just don't have it in us. Instead, we need to look to someone outside of ourselves who actually has the ability to fight and to conquer the enemies of sin, death, and the devil and secure the victory for us, that his victory might be our victory so that our souls might be secure for all eternity. So our passage this morning about David and Goliath points us forward to the one true king who has done just that. And I promise you that he's a king that you want to hear about. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16 is on page 213. My outline is right in the bulletin. Title of my sermon this morning, Victory in the One True King. As you're turning, let me quickly remind you of where we're at in Israel's history. Because Samuel is the last judge and prophet, but by chapter 8, the people are demanding a king like all the other nations. The number one criteria for that king is that he will go out to fight their battles for them as their representative, as their champion. Saul is chosen to be that king, but by chapter 15, he's disqualified himself. Chapter 15, verse 23 says, his rebellion is as bad as divination and idolatry. And because he rejected God's word, God rejected him as king. So as that is our context, follow along as I read 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, 
for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. So Saul is out, and God sends Samuel to secure a new king. Not chosen by the people, but handpicked by God himself. And at one level, that seems pretty straightforward. All Samuel has to do is go up to Bethlehem and let God pick the new king. But on another level, it's super dangerous. Because it's risky to anoint a new king when the old king is still in office. That doesn't tend to go over very well. So God sends Samuel to Bethlehem, telling him to shrewdly avoid Saul, who at this stage is not a neutral guy. Instead, he's an enemy of God. In fact, he'll spend the rest of 1 Samuel trying to kill God's anointed king because he doesn't have a heart after God's own heart and therefore doesn't love God, believe in God, trust God, or obey God. He is the seed of the serpent. In fact, notice how the heart is immediately highlighted for us in verse 7. Because as soon as Samuel sees Eliab, he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But God clarifies, do not look at the physical appearance, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Men look on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. So all of Jesse's sons, all seven of them, pass in front of Samuel. And every time he says, nope, not this one. Nope, 
Not this one. Nope. Not this one. Seven times. No. Not this one. So we're sitting there on the edge of our seats waiting. But the Lord has not chosen any of these sons. So Samuel finally asks the question, are these all your sons? Jesse responds, I have one more. (laughs) Okay. Who apparently was considered so unimportant and so insignificant that his family didn't even invite him to the party. So the entire scene gets put on hold. And everyone waits, notice, standing in place, waiting for the one who up to this point in the story is still totally unknown, still totally unnamed, but is tending his sheep in Bethlehem. So clearly David is a, an unlikely king. But when he arrives, the Lord removes all suspense And makes him be the anointed king. Samuel takes the horn of oil, pours it over David, which Psalm 133 clarifies, is abundantly poured out to such an extent that it comes running down the man's beard. So extensive and effusive because it's a picture of how the Holy Spirit is being poured out in abundance on David. That's why verse 13 says, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. So Saul is out, spirit departs, and David is in, anointed, has the spirit, and is God's chosen king, which means he's the only one qualified to stand in God's place as God's representative, as God's champion. And to demonstrate the power of this spirit, we're told in verses 14 to 23 that he's able to cast out demons. Lord brings a harmful spirit on Saul, which is more than the Ephesians 2 spirit at work in the sons of disobedience, but an additional evil spirit from God with the specific purpose of tormenting Saul. Now, why would God do that? Well, number one, Saul is a seed of the serpent. But more importantly, I believe it's for the specific purpose of putting David on display as the one true king chosen by God and divinely equipped in order to cast out these wicked spirits or these demons. But either way, let's just step back for a moment and think together about the unbelievable description we've been given in this one chapter, chapter 16, in which David hasn't even spoken. So we already know he's the youngest son of Jesse, a lowly shepherd boy from Bethlehem. He seems to be insignificant even to his own family, yet is anointed with the Spirit, and the Lord is with him, seen most clearly in his ability to cast out spirits. So David's a lowly shepherd boy chosen by God, anointed with the Spirit from Bethlehem to be king. Now let's meet the challenger. Number two, king challenged by enemy. Follow along as I pick it up. Chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah at Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. 
And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So picture this scene. Philistines gathered on the one side, Israelite on the other side with this big valley between them. So there's no way that either army is going to give up the high ground. So everyone is just hunkered down in this stalemate. But what you might not realize is that the location is only 15 miles from Bethlehem, and it's only 20 miles from Jerusalem. So imagine how you would feel if our arch enemies, right, Russia and Putin, were camped 15 miles from your hometown and only 20 miles from Washington, D.C. How would you feel about that with only one army standing between them and the capital. You need to understand this is a big deal. This is a massive battle that is taking place. But how does it get played out? Well, look at verse 4. They came out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Then he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come down to draw up for battle?' Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and I kill him, then you shall be our servants and you shall serve us. The Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul... And all Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Skip down to verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Now verse 20. Then David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper And took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the engagement, to the encampment, as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. Now, did you catch the stats on this guy, Goliath? And did you notice that he is listed as being nine and a half feet tall? Do you know how tall that is? I think we should measure. Nine and a half feet is 114 inches. So get a hold of this. 
114 inches. All right. I had to buy a special tape measure for this. Here we go. That is 114 inches right there. Is that not incredible? On earth is not this man's equal. That's what you're to take away just from his height. But he's not just big, is he? No, he's got phenomenal weapons. Sword slung between his shoulders, spear with a shaft like a weaver's beam, so massively thick, and a tip that weighs as much as a bowling ball, 16 pounds. Can you even imagine having that thrust in your face? He's got state-of-the-art armor, bronze helmet on his head, bronze scale-like armor on his chest and on his back, bronze scale-like shin guards. His total armor weighs 126 pounds. That's incredible. Now, why do you think the text describes Goliath as wearing all of this bronze scaly-like armor? Well, because it's trying to help you see him for who he really is. He's dressed like a snake because he's a seed of the serpent. And he's not just presented as an impressive enemy, one among many, but as an enemy who's totally invincible. So you're convinced that on earth is not his equal. Now, I don't know if they had announcers back then, but as soon as I read this description, I can't help but hear one of those prize fight announcers in my ears. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, let's get ready to rumble. Our main event this morning is an unlikely contest between brute and brains, might and mind, strength and speed. In the far corner, weighing in at an astronomical amount, breaking the scales, we have the mighty challenger known by all as the wrath from Gath, the Philistine death machine, the champion of destruction, the nine-foot-tall tower of terror, Goliath. And in the near corner, we have... Who do we have? Who's in the near corner? Well, the obvious choice would be Saul. That certainly seems to be Goliath's assumption. That's why he says, verse 8, Am I not the Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? So Goliath represents the Philistines. He is the Philistines. He's their champion. And he assumes that Saul is going to represent the people of God, which, by the way, is the, what the people wanted him to do. Where is Saul? Verse 11 tells us, he's dismayed and he's greatly afraid. Now you have got to see how the text labors for you to compare Saul to David. Verse 11 is about Saul. Verse 12, we transition to David. The text moves from Saul to David, from the unworthy king to God's anointed king. But even at this point, verses 12 to 19 still describe David as a lowly shepherd boy who runs errands for his father and gets sandwiches for his brothers. So here's the question. How would the announcer 
introduce David. Ladies and gentlemen, in the near corner, weighing in at almost nothing, barely tipping the scales, we have our very own hometown boy, known only by close friends and family as the shepherd boy, the errand runner, the grocery getter, the little engine that could, and the Bethlehem bumblebee, who can float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, with a rock and a sling, as we shall soon see our very own David. And yes, David will show himself to be the one true king of Israel. But you need to understand at this point, there is no comparison between David and Goliath. Goliath is a seemingly invincible warrior, and David is a lowly shepherd boy, puny and pathetic. He's no comparison to Goliath. And yet, we do have chapter 16, don't we? So we know that God's champion is here, chosen by God, representing the people, anointed with the Spirit, and reigning as the King, which brings us to be taunting herd, because on one particular morning, David's up early running errands when he hears Goliath taunting the Lord and the armies of the living God. Now, Goliath has been trash-talking Israel every single day, morning and evening, for 40 days. Just think about that. 40 days in a row. Every single morning, every single evening, this Philistine comes forward and he defies the ranks of Israel. Which means that Saul has been given 80 opportunities to step forward and do something. And yet he has done Nothing, which only highlights David's response. Because as soon as he hears the garbage spewing out of this Philistine's mouth, he's outraged. And he says, verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Do you hear the passion in David's voice and the zeal in his heart? I mean, he's consumed with God's glory, honor, and reputation. And he's not going to tolerate this giant, no matter how tall he is, who worships false gods to disrespect, disregard, and disdain the name of the living God. He's not going to tolerate it. David's zeal for the Lord is showing him to be God's champion and God's king, a man with a heart. For God's glory. Which brings us to see the king emerges. Let's pick it up in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be just like one of them. 
for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the book and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So see, the one true king emerges. Because David courageously steps forward and volunteers to face Goliath. But Saul takes one look at him and says, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. But David responds and he argues that he's totally prepared. First, because he's been shepherding sheep his entire life, verse 36. And it's not unusual for them to face lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! David is a good shepherd. And he quickly recounts two situations where he killed both a lion and a bear, grabbing them by the scruff of the chin and killing them with his bare hands. Just think about that for a moment. I mean, who grabs a bear by the hair on his chinny chin chin and kills him? Who does that? But a guy who handles bears like that is confident this Philistine will be no different. But notice how David argues, verse 37, that he's prepared to fight, not because he's so tall, tan, and terrific, not because he's impressive, not because he has all these resources, but because the battle is the Lord's. So his view on killing the lion and the bear are not that he was well-equipped or skilled, but that God delivered him. Delivered him from the paw of the lion, delivered him from the paw of the bear, and surely God will deliver him from the paw of this Philistine. So David's confidence is not in himself, but in the Lord God Almighty. It's not in his own gifting or ability, but in God's strength. And God's ability. And it's certainly not in his armor. So he rejects Saul's armor and chooses to fight with the weapons of a shepherd using only his staff and sling and five stones from the brook. Now, no doubt, he must have appeared to Saul and to everyone else as a completely unarmed and defenseless fool. Yet you need to understand, the sling and the stone, they were legitimate weapons of war. In fact, I'm not sure if you know this, but the stones would have been as big as a tennis ball, and they could be flung at speeds reaching over 100 miles per hour. And an accomplished warrior or shepherd could be deadly accurate. So this is no child's toy that we're talking about. This is not a plastic slingshot. Number one. King chosen by God. Number two, king challenged by enemy. And now David's going to show himself to be the one true king who, number three, conquers his enemy. If you would follow along as I read verses 41 to 53. The Philistine moved forward, and he came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. 
And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why will David do that? He tells us that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. So Goliath's first comment to David is one of disdain. Because winning a contest against an unarmed, underage challenger is not particularly impressive, right? It's like a grown man beating a little girl in an arm wrestling contest. There's no honor in that. And the trash talking begins. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? I will crush you and feed you to the birds. But David's not intimidated. He responds word for word, speech for speech. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. Notice verse 45. David says to you, I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, whom you have defied. David gives us two clear purposes for the battle. Number one is in verse 46, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Number two, verse 47, that all the earth might know that he's a God who saves. Not with sword or spirit, so not instruments of human power, because the battle belongs to the Lord. So be clear, the reason that all the earth will know that there's a God in Israel is because he's a God who saves. How is he going to do that? Verse 46, David tells us 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistines so the entire army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. David's saying, I will crush your head, but I will not only crush your head, we are going to plunder your people. Victory won like this, so that all the earth will know that there's a God in Israel and that he's a God who saves. That's the promise that David is making. Soon as the talking stops, the fighting begins. No doubt, Goliath lumbering forward with all of his armor, David sprinting to the battle line, securing his position, and slinging the stone directly at Goliath. I want you to just think about that. Can you even imagine what it must have been like? A stone the size of a tennis ball coming right at your forehead at 100 miles an hour, hurled with such force that it crushes the frontal bone of Goliath's cranium and sinks deep into his forehead. David literally crushes Goliath's head, who immediately then falls to the ground face first and dies. You have got to see that as the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And David doesn't waste any time. Instead, he sprints forward, grabs Goliath's sword, and cuts his head clean off. No doubt raises it high in the air so the whole army can see it, and he screams like Braveheart. <laughs> Isn't that how you tell your kids the story? How about this thought? Maybe he didn't do any of that. Maybe he cut off his head and he simply said, it is finished. Either way, fight is over and the victory is won. Verse 50 says, thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and he struck the Philistine and he killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. You see, the text labors to clarify that the enemy is conquered not by sword or spear, not by human power, God's divine deliverance so that all the earth might know that there is a God in Israel and that he's a God who saves and he saves through his own means and he saves through the hands of his anointed king. So B, head crushed, now C, people plunder. I want you to see the immediate impact of David's victory because it's a complete reversal of events. For starters, when the Philistines see their champion is dead, they go from confidence to fear and they immediately fled. They, may, they ran for the hills. They don't stay and fight. They don't wait for instructions. No, they know they're defeated. Goliath was their representative. And if he's conquered, then they're conquered. But for the Israelites, it's the complete opposite. For 40 days, morning and evening, they've been hunkered down in holes in total fear and trembling. But David's fight is their fight, and his victory is their victory. He stood in their place, and he represented them against this seemingly invincible enemy, and he's prevailed. So when he crushed the enemy's head and rose victorious, verse 52 says, they rose with a shout. 
and immediately pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and Ekron. Now, why does that matter? Why do they tell us these places? Well, because Gath is Goliath's hometown. And Ekron is the Philistines' capital city. So it's a complete reversal of the situation. And all along the way, the streets are full of dead bodies. And are they done after they chase them all the way back to Gath and Ekron? No, they come back. Verse 53 says, When the people returned from chasing the Philistines, they continued to plunder the enemy's camp. Ongoing victory with increased confidence and courage to take whatever they want. Because David's victory is 100% their victory. Now, as we step back from this glorious story again, some might want to identify themselves with David and take this as a victory promise against whatever evils, whatever difficulties they are currently facing in their own lives because they bridge the gap from the Philistine giant to the giants of their own lives. But are the struggles of jobs and finances, relationships and family feuds, sickness and health issues, the real enemies of our souls? Are they the things that threaten our eternal well-being? Are we really supposed to identify ourselves with David and use his victory as personal motivation to face the giants in our lives? All we need to do, brothers and sisters, is grab the sling and the stones that God has given to us, using our gifting and our ability, resources and work ethic to conquer the giants that are taunting and tormenting us. Is that really the take-home message this morning? Oh, beloved, no. Not at all. If we do that, we'll be totally missing the point. Those aren't the giants the Bible is most concerned about. Instead, the enemies we need to be concerned about are sin, death, and the devil. Those are the enemies of our souls, the giants threatening our eternal well-being. So this story is not about you being the best you that you can be. No, it's about showing us that we're in way over our heads, outmatched and outgunned and totally inadequate to deal with those enemies on our own. We just do not have it in us, which forces us to look outside of ourselves to a God-given divine champion. Don't you see? This story is pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus. He's the ultimate lowly shepherd boy from Bethlehem. I mean, can you imagine anything more low or more humbling than being born in a barn with a feeding trough as your crib? Can you think of anyone more insignificant than the Lord Jesus, unknown and undervalued? John 1.11 tells us that he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and forsaken by men. Jesus is the unlikely kin, insignificant and lowly, yet chosen by God and anointed with the Spirit. Remember his baptism? Coming up out of the water, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Jesus anointed with the Spirit. And as a result, he has all authority in heaven and on earth, casting out demons. Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd because Jesus is the one who said, I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus willingly went to the cross, 
representing us, taking our sins upon himself, bearing our guilt and our shame so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be restored, redeemed, delivered, and that we might be saved. How does he do that? By being our one true king who fights for his people. So the ultimate enemy is not Goliath, the seed of the serpent, but the serpent himself, the devil, who Jesus conquered on our behalf, doing for us what we couldn't possibly do for ourselves. Because he's the one true king with a heart after God's own heart, seen most clearly in his passion for God's glory and his obedience to God's commands. Being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross where Jesus bore our sin, died our death, and crushed the serpent's head once for all. Not with a sword or with a spear, but through the unlikely means of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he rose victorious, conquering the enemy and securing the victory. That his victory can be our victory. So that our souls might be secure for all eternity. And so that all the earth might know, all the nations, that there is a God. And he's a God who saves. Here's the question. Do you know that this morning? Do you know that there is a God? And do you know that he's a God who saves? Oh, I want you to be clear. Victory over sin, death, and the devil is only available to those who put their faith in the one true king. So in the same way that David's victory was only available for the people of God, so too Jesus' victory is only available to those who put their faith in Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins or the hope of eternal life, then you need to know you're on the wrong side. You're an enemy of God, not a friend of God. If you're not in him, then you're against him. If that's you this morning, please know that right now you have no savior who's paid for your sin. You have no representative who's taken your place. And you have no shepherd who's laid down his life so that you might have life for all eternity. I mean, do you really think that you can take on an enemy like Goliath on your own and win, you will be crushed. Only God's anointed king can beat him. So right now you're an enemy of God. And if you die or Christ returns, you'll endure the penalty of eternal destruction, a place called hell, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. You will be punished for being an enemy of God. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because Jesus came to fight for his people. And he has conquered sin, death, and the devil, securing the victory of our salvation. Dear unbeliever, I plead with you to not be so arrogant and so proud to think that you're going to take on the devil on your own. Oh, I plead with you, put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Let his fight be your fight. Let his victory be your victory. Turn from your rebellion, repent of your sin, and trust in Christ's finished work on the cross so that your soul might be secure for all eternity. I invite you to do so right now. 
Why would you wait? My ability to conquer him? No way. Jesus' ability? The reality of his death, his burial, his resurrection? Victory accomplished? Oh, I invite you. There's only one way to secure your soul for all eternity, and it's by putting your faith in the one true king. And you can do so this morning. You can make that choice. And I invite you to do so. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, are you seeing that you're in the exact same situation? Not as David. You're not David. But as the Israelite soldiers, right? You too were once following the wrong king. Terrified and afraid, hunker down in the depth of your sin. But now King Jesus has conquered the serpent's head and secured your victory. His fight is your fight. His victory is your victory. So you're free to rise and shout and sing because you've been delivered from the devil, given power over sin, and you've been promised eternal life. Jesus tells us, John 8, 36, that if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. You are free, dear believer, which means you do not have to be afraid or intimidated. Instead, you have real power. So you can be confident in your fight against sin, right? He's given you that power. It's not power in and of yourself, you know that. But the gift of the Spirit empowering you. So you have real power over sin. So let me just ask you, what sins are you struggling with this morning? What sins are you tempted to think are too strong that they're going to conquer you? What sins would they be for you this morning? Fear of man? Anger? Pride? Anxiety? Control issues? Selfishness? Thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think? Judgmentalism? Looking down on others? Maybe it's greed. I just have to have more. Or maybe it's sexual immorality. I'm telling you, whatever sin you're struggling with, I want to remind you that you've been given the power of the Spirit to not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, Romans 6, 12, which is dominion language. So you can say, not in and of yourself, but by the power of the Spirit, you can say no to sin. And you can say yes to righteousness. Because Jesus Christ stood in your place, fought your fight, secured your victory, and has now given you power over sin by his Spirit. You're free. You're free, number one, free to walk in newness of life with power over sin. And you're free, number two, free to engage the spiritual fight that is raging around us. I'm not talking about physical wars and armies. I'm not talking about Israel. I'm not talking about handguns and hand grenades. No, I'm talking about Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, recognizing that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces of wickedness. So our weapons are not physical weapons. They're spiritual weapons. 
truth and righteousness, faith and salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the gospel of grace, which is why we need to be a people who identify ourselves with Christ. And we need to be a people who communicate the gospel as often as we possibly can. That's how we fight by proclaiming the good news of the gospel and praying for its success, that it would spread rapidly and be glorified. Do you understand? You're free. Free to fight the good fight of faith by proclaiming the gospel so that others might be liberated. Liberate your friends and your family. Liberate your classmates and your co-workers. Rescue them from the domain of darkness and transfer them to the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Colossians chapter 1. Do you understand? That's how we plunder the enemy. That is how we set the captives free. Through the faithful proclamation of the gospel so that others might walk in newness of life. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I plead with you not to read 1 Samuel 16 and 17 and think that it's a motivational story for you to fight the giants in your life. But instead, that you would look to the Lord Jesus, that you would delight that he is your one true king. That you might be resolved, number one, to be confident in your own fight against sin, and number two, to be courageous in proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Praise God. We have a king, and his victory is our victory. Let's rise up. Let's shout. Let's sing. Let's go forward and proclaim the reality of his finished work on the cross. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're so grateful that the whole Bible points us forward to the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for any who are here this morning who are tempted to look at their own gifting and ability to fight against these realities. Lord, I pray instead that they would realize, that they would understand that they are outmatched and outgunned. I pray that they would see the reality of sin that is ruling and reigning in their life. And I pray that they would look to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Father, by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would move mightily in minds and hearts to delight them in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would know that we are set free when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we really do have power over sin. We really can say no to the things that tempt us. And we can really say yes to righteousness, to walking in a manner that brings glory and honor and praise to your holy name. And Lord, I pray that we would trust the gospel, that we would proclaim it, knowing that you use it in a mighty way so that people might come to faith and delight themselves in this one true king. Lord, I pray that you move mightily. And I do pray that you would raise us up to shout and sing and to go forward, not in our own strength and power, 
but in the strength and power of our one true King. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.